we have been, as we have been walking through the Gospel of Matthew these last several uh, months, we have seen from various angles the incomparable glory of the Lord Jesus. There's his glory and his mastery over demons and over disease and over nature and even over death. There's the glory in the fact that when he comes, he fulfills so many of the things that the Old Testament prophets said would happen. There's his, his glory in his ability to interpret authoritatively. He is unmatched in his ability to interpret the uh, Old Testament law. We've seen his glory in his deft responses to the challenges that have come from the false teachers, uh, from the, uh, the, the, the priests and the other uh, teachers of the law, his opponents. We've seen his glory in the tenderness with which he serves suffering and hurting people. Uh, the Lord Jesus is equal to every challenge and every test in every situation. There's nothing he cannot do. He is perfectly uh, sufficient, even uh, more than adequate for every situation, every challenge, everything that comes his way. There he is, shining in his glory. And you would think, you would think that some of that wisdom and courage and insight would rub off on his followers. You would think that the men who had been walking with him for a long time would, would have some of that same wisdom and courage and insight. You would think that, but you would be wrong if you would be thinking that. Because, well, there's this account here that shows us. Down from the mountain, Jesus comes with three of his disciples to find the other nine flailing and frustrated because they can't help this anxious father and his suffering son. And you ask yourself, what happened to the disciples? They, they had cast out demons before. They had healed people before. Jesus had given them power to do it. What happened? Why, Why are they failing so poorly so much right now? I think Matthew told us this account for a couple of different reasons. On the one hand, Matthew wants to, again, highlight the contrast between Jesus and the disciples. Uh, Jesus is the Lord of glory, and next to him, no human being shines. And he's on his way to Jerusalem to fulfill the will of his father and offering himself as a sacrifice for our sins on the cross. And there is no one who's with him in this. No one who understands what's going to happen. No one who's supportive of this plan unfolding. Uh, maybe you, you can think about it this way. I, I, I suggest to you that you never in your house paint the ceiling of your house. If you're sitting in your living room and you look up at your house and you think, hmm, the ceiling doesn't look so good. Maybe I should paint it. Don't do it. Because if you paint the ceiling in your house, you know what happens. The walls will start to look kind of dingy and kind of scuffed up. And you'll have to paint the walls. Don't paint the walls in your house because if you paint the walls in your house, you know what happened. The trim will start to look a little scuffed and a little dingy and it will need some. And if you paint the trim, you know what you're going to have to do. Replace the carpet because that's when the carpet stains will show and, and the threadbare. And if you replace the carpet, you know what's going to happen. That couch, that 25-year-old couch that you've had that's so lumpy is going to start to look a little bit even lumpier and, and even worse. So don't paint the ceiling in your living room. Here's Jesus. Here he comes. He is the Lord of glory. And next to him, every human being looks a little dingy, a little scruffy, a little threadbare. The good news is that the Lord Jesus has come for dingy, threadbare, scruffy people. And he's come to rescue them so that they can share in his glory. But here in this passage, 
here's Jesus shining, and the rest of the people around him, ugh, they don't look so good. The second reason that this passage, though, is here, that Matthew told us this, I think, is it's here to help us, uh, encourage us, help us find, uh, uh, discover what to do when we find ourselves flailing and frustrated. It happens to all of us. All of us at times uh, flail and are frustrated. Our incompetence is on display. Think about it in, in the terms of, of the, the context of the book of Matthew. At the end of Matthew, Jesus gives a command to the disciples and through the disciples to us, go and, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. How are you doing in fulfilling that command, this great command that the Lord Jesus gave to us, making disciples in your neighborhood, at work. <laughs> You're supposed to, Jesus says, teach other people to obey everything that he commanded. And you think to yourself, I'm having trouble, enough trouble myself obeying the commands that Jesus gave, let alone trying to help somebody else do it. What if you're not making much progress in following Jesus faithfully? Well, um, Matthew told us this account so that it would help us. The key issue here in this whole passage is the inability of the disciples, the disciples' failure. Verse 19, why couldn't we drive it out? Indeed, why can't they? What's wrong? What's going wrong with the disciples? What I want to do is I want to think about two sides of this question that they ask. Why couldn't we drive out the demon? Two questions, two sides of that question. First, we're going to talk about the failure of the disciples. And then we're going to talk about the faith of the disciples. And I'm not just talking about those disciples, them back there. I'm talking about us disciples here today, our failures. Jesus uh, is pointing out some of the ways, well, where we are. And, and he's going to point a direction to where we want to go when we think about the contrast between their failure and the faith to which he calls them. What's notable in this, in this account is that the miracle is secondary, actually. This great thing that Jesus does is almost, uh, just passes quickly to get to the, the, the heart of the issue. But we should, I think, talk about the context of this passage and think about this anxious father in the context. Uh, Jesus comes down from the mountain, and he comes with Peter, James, and John to the rest of his disciples he, where his glory, his eternal glory has been revealed up on the mountain. And now he comes down to this crowd, this rambunctious crowd, from uh, uh, the glory of the Father to the suffering of humanity. Even in the, the staging of this, you just kind of see what Jesus is experiencing. And, and when he comes down to the crowd, he's approached by a father who kneels before him, this desperate man. In Matthew chapter 17, there's two fathers and two sons. There's God the Father on the mountain who testifies to his divine son. And here there is this suffering father who intercedes for his desperate son. Two fathers, two sons. I wonder if Jesus was thinking about this, the, the affirmation that he's just received from God the Father on the mountain when he sees this hurting father down below. Well, um, this is one of the times in the Gospel of Matthew, there's several instances of this, several instances of Matthew where miracles happen based on the intercession of, uh, of friends or family members. Do you remember this? The last parent that we saw in Matthew was uh, a mother, and she was in Matthew chapter 15, and she came to Jesus, this Canaanite woman, and said, Lord, please 
heal my daughter, interceding parents. Do you remember uh, what J.C. Ryle said about this? J.C. Ryle, the Anglican bishop of the awesome beard, he said this about that woman back in Matthew chapter 15. He said, Through the prayer of the mother, the daughter is healed. On her own behalf, the daughter did not speak a word, but her mother spoke for her to the Lord and did not speak in vain. Hopeless and desperate as her case appeared, she had a praying mother, and where there is a praying mother, there is always hope. Some of you have um, been encouraged, were encouraged by that, that praying mother to pray fervently for your kids. You kind of lit a fire a little bit. Maybe this father will help too. Let's, let's change this paraphrase that um, hopeless and desperate as his case appeared, this son, he had a praying father. And where there is a praying father, there is always hope. The, the boy has a seizure disorder of some kind. It's a word that we often is, uh, translated epilepsy, but it's different than that. This is a seizure disorder that seems to have a malicious bent because the seizures overtake this boy when he is most likely to be hurt. The seizures happen to him when he's near fire or near water, near the family well, when he has a chance to fall into the fire or fall into the water and get hurt. It's almost as if the seizures are sentient, as if they're planning and plotting against this little boy. They're malicious. They're, they're uh, destructive. It's not just a, a physical problem. Uh, the disciples tried. They couldn't help. But let, let, look at what Jesus does. Verse 17, Jesus says, Bring the boy here to me. Now, that's a phrase. It's repeated in Matthew. It comes up in Matthew chapter 14. When Jesus is in front of another crowd, he is in front of a hungry crowd, and the disciples are supposed to feed this hungry crowd. They can't do it. And Jesus says, what do you got? Five loaves, two fishes. And he says, very similar, bring them here to me. Remember, your insufficiency in the hands of Jesus are more than enough. We sing the song, uh, the, the old hymn, uh, Come ye sinners, poor and needy. Come ye sinners to Jesus. And verse 3 says, Let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream. Don't stay away from Jesus because you're waiting to be in good shape, in good enough shape to come to Jesus. That you've cleaned up your life enough to come to Jesus. Let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requireth is to feel your need of him. What you need in order to come to Jesus is need. Bring them here to me, Jesus says. Bring the boy here to me. And verse 18 tells us, Jesus healed the boy without delay, perfect healing. And, and what the disciples couldn't do, Jesus did. It appears without even trying. He just healed the boy. There's no response in the text from the boy or the father, no rejoicing, no thanking, nothing like that. Because the point, again, they're not the real focus. The point is on the disciples. The focus is on the disciple and their failure. So let's think about that here, the failure of the disciples. Why, verse 19, why couldn't we drive it out? Verse 20, because you have so little faith. Little faith, little faith. Remember, this is a title that Jesus uses here. He's describing them. You have little faith. 
a couple of times prior to this, Jesus had called them little faiths, as if that was their nickname. Little faith, little faith, little faith. Uh, he's called, you wonder if the disciples are kind of frustrated by this. Jesus, why do you keep calling us little faith? And Jesus says, because you have little faith. Verse 17, he gives us more details. You unbelieving and perverse generation, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy here to me. Does Jesus sound frustrated to you? A lot of commentators, they point, out to this, they point to this verse and they say, see here, Jesus is fully human. He's fully divine and he's fully human. And here's his humanity coming out in this frustration with this generation. I don't think that's a good idea. It's not a good practice to go through the gospels and say, here's Jesus being divine. Here's Jesus being human. Here, that's, a, that's a bad practice. But um, actually, I, I could point out here that, that God, uh, that Jesus sounds very much like God in the Old Testament here with these words that he says. Actually, before we get to that, he sounds like Moses. Moses came down from the mountain and to uh, the crowd of the Israelites and was horrified at what he saw. Now Jesus is, is, is coming down. Well, look what Moses and how Moses described the people in Deuteronomy 32. This is toward the end of his life and ministry. He says this, I will proclaim the name of the Lord. Oh, oh, praise the greatness of our God. He's the rock. His works are perfect and all his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just is he. Moses, the praise leader. Then he describes the people in verse 5, the Israelites. It's not a compliment. They are corrupt and not his children. To their shame, they are a warped and crooked generation. Jesus had said, you're unbelieving and perverse. Moses says, they are warped and crooked. Is this the way, verse 6, you repay the Lord, you foolish and unwise people? Is he not your father, your creator, who made you and formed you? Now look at what God said to Moses once about this same group of people in Numbers chapter 14, verse 26. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, how long will this wicked community grumble against me? I have heard the complaints of these grumbling Israelites. God appears to be frustrated with the people. Jesus is frustrated with this generation. He says, we should think about this some more, unbelieving and perverse. Unbelieving, they, they will not trust God. Perverse is a word that, that could, you could translate that crooked. And, and perverse in this context refers to, well, they, they feed each other. Their crookedness feeds their unbelief. They have ample reason to trust God, but they won't do it. They're so crooked, they won't trust God. They have doubts. They're beset with doubt, not because they're weak, they're beset with doubts because they're wicked and they won't trust God. There's a stubbornness to their unbelief. They have enough evidence to believe, but they won't do it. The Oregonian is a newspaper in Portland, uh, Oregon. And a, few, a while back, there was a, an article about a woman named Amanda who lost her ID. And she reported to the police that she lost her ID. And the police found it. And they called her to tell her to come get her ID, to, to meet up, to exchange ID. A police officer called her, and uh, she didn't answer the phone. She didn't recognize the number, heard the message, and was immediately skeptical. This is a scam. 
The next call was from somebody trying to update her car warranty, but she was really skeptical about this, this phone call that came from this supposed police officer. So he texted her. He said, no, I, uh, this is officer. I, I, have, I have your ID. She said, I, who, who knows who you could be? I don't, I don't trust you. So he used his phone and he took a selfie of himself standing in his uniform in front of his police car holding her ID card. Finally, she was convinced. The police were actually somewhat uh, uh, pleased with her skepticism that it's not a, not a great, not a good idea, that her skepticism was probably a good idea. But notice in the, God himself, he didn't send a selfie. He's moved into the neighborhood. Jesus is here. You should trust him. You have ample reason to trust him him. Why did the disciples fail? They're the prime example of this generation to which Jesus, Jesus is serving that is crooked, is perverse, unbelieving. What happened to the disciples? What's going on with them? My suspicion is that they have fallen into a temptation that the Bible warns us against repeatedly, the temptation to trust in ourselves and not on God to rely on our own strength and our own power and not on God's power. As if the authority that Jesus had given them to cast out demons, to heal the sick, is now theirs, like they have now the secret within themselves. In, in contrast to that, walking by faith is a daily discipline. And the temptation to rely on ourselves is persistent throughout the Bible. Let me give you some examples. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul's been suffering terrible, terribly, and he writes to the Corinthians about what he learned here in 2 Corinthians 1. He says, Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. He's having a bad day. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Trust me, if the Apostle Paul is tempted to rely on himself and not on God, you will experience that temptation too. Or look at Jeremiah 2 and how Jeremiah the prophet describes the people and how they live and what they do. He says, my people have committed two sins. Number one, they have forsaken me, the spring of living water. They've turned from me, sin number one. And sin number two, they have dug their own cisterns broken cisterns that cannot hold water. God says, I am for my people water, fresh, clean, pure water. They can live and it will sustain them. But instead, they have turned from me and have dug for themselves broken, cracked cisterns. John Piper says this is the epitome of what sin is, turning from God and living according to our own resources. And it, it, it's, Jeremiah says, it's just, this is the original Hebrew, dumb. Now look at Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, uh, an extended thinking about this, relying on our own wisdom, our own uh, life here, our own power. Verse 20, since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Now follow me here. What's going on in Colossae? There are some people, some believers in Colossae who think that if they have the right rules in place in their life, that that's how they're going to live a life that pleases God. 
You've got to have the right rules in place. Make the right rules. You'll have the right outcome. Your life will please God. You'll be transformed. We're not talking here about biblical commands. They're rules that come from human beings. They've made up these rules, and they look really good. They're very impressive on the outside, but they don't change the heart. This is the mistakes we sometimes get into as parents, isn't it? We have this idea that if we have the right rules in our home, that our children will turn out great. And the reason my children, someone might say, are doing well and your children are doing poorly is because I had the right set of rules and you didn't have the right set of rules. Now, every family needs rules, right? You need rules, but you don't trust in rules to transform hearts because rules don't change hearts, especially in Colossae. Their problem is these man-made rules that um, are just harsh. We just uh, uh, sang a minute ago, the solid rock, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. I dare not trust the sweetest frame. I'm not going to lean, I'm not going to rely on something that might look good, uh, that might be attractive, some frame that I think might hold me up. I'm not going to do that. I'm wholly going to lean on Jesus' name. Look at what Paul says in Colossians 2 when he's thinking about this. Colossians 2, verses 6 and 7. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, now here's a good question, just as you received Christ, how did you receive Christ? How did you become a Christian? That's the just as. He's after this. Just as you received Christ. How did you do it? By faith. You become a Christian by faith by turning and trusting in what the Lord Jesus has done for us on the cross as our Savior, dying and rising again for our sins. Just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord by faith, then, so, continue to live your lives in Him by faith, rooted and built up in Him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. The disciples seem to have forgotten this. They, They were relying on Jesus' power. They're not anymore. Now, we should think about Jesus' frustration for just a minute before we move on, uh, Jesus' frustration over this. They're perverse, they have enough evidence, but unbelieving, uh, that they're ignoring and therefore unbelieving. Moses led a wicked generation. Jesus served a wicked generation. Is Jesus this frustrated with you too? Could you use these letters, these words in your Bible Is that that how Jesus thinks about you? You uniquely among his people. You know, Jesus looks around and he sees his people and and he says, oh yeah, yeah, there's there's Gary and there's Lester and Sylvia and Jose. Oh, they're my brothers and sisters, yes. And then Jesus sees you and he says, oh, Jesse, yeah. Not sure how you got in here, but you're in. Some people think this way, that this, that this frustration characterizes Jesus as he thinks about you. Now, you're the one person in the body of Christ that he regrets saving because you've been nothing but a disappointment to him. I'm not sure that that's the way you should read this story or think about Jesus' frustration. 
Picture it like this. Picture a, a, a family that throws for their daughter a 10-year-old, 10-year uh, birthday party, and it is the birthday party to end all birthday parties. It's a birthday party blowout bash. It's, it's budget-busting, probably foolish. This girl's not going to be able to go to college now because you spent all of her money on this birthday party, all right? Um, there was 20 other 10-year-olds at this party. There was a pony, uh, three bounce houses, a magician, a clown, cake, balloons, fireworks. I mean, it was a huge birthday blowout bash. And at the end of it, uh, the father finds his little girl, his 10-year-old child, with her head in her hands, sitting on the edge of the porch by herself. And he comes over and he says, oh, sugar plum, what's wrong? And she says, do you really love me? Now, if you were that dad, would you be frustrated? Yes, yes, yes. But because you're a godly father, you would respond. You would say, of course, of course, I love you. Do you remember all the things that we did today? It was, it was our effort to show you just by the celebration how precious you are to us and how we value you. What more can I do to show you? Jesus, in this moment of frustration, you're unbelieving and perverse. There's a mountain of evidence to believe, to show you that I am trustworthy. Why, why do you persist in your unbelief? I can go one step further. This mountain of evidence is enough to sustain you even when things happen to you that you do not understand or do not expect to happen to you. Remember that uh, we are in the context of suffering. Jesus has introduced the idea of suffering and following him to the disciples just a, a few verses before. He had said, if anybody wants to follow me, they have to pick up their cross and follow me. There is no glory without suffering in following the Lord Jesus. And into the life of every one of his people comes unexpected, unwelcome suffering, and it lands like a lead weight in your lap. Now, we read the Bible, we know that suffering is useful. I would like, like the Apostle Paul, to be able to identify, like he did in 2 Corinthians 1, oh, I know why this suffering happened. This suffering happened so that, and, and if God would just tell me that, I'll learn the lesson, I'll go to school, and, and I'll get the lesson, and then he can take this terrible suffering away. You know, every Sunday, there are people who come to our church, your brothers and sisters, and they sit in the chairs near you, and they have with them, they brought it, this terrible pain. And they come, and they, they sit down, and they stand, and they sing with you, and they hear uh, one of our elders lead in prayer, and they listen to the scriptures as they're read, and as I try to explain them, and they have this, this weight that they brought with them. Every Sunday, there's somebody, in, at least one person in this room with this inexplicable, terrible pain, this sorrow. And, and that unknown thing that's come into your life will either push you toward God or it will push you away from Him. Either you will say, God is wise and good and merciful 
I don't understand this, but I understand that there's this mountain of evidence of his trustworthiness. So in the midst of this, I will trust him. Or, or this thing will make you say, yeah, God says he's wise and he says he's good and he says he's merciful, but I don't think so. Right? Jesus says, there's a mountain of evidence of the goodness and wisdom and mercy of God. And even though you have this big unknown thing, it should push you closer to Jesus, not farther away. It's, not, it's an easier thing to say than it is to do. But how can we forget? Can we repeat it often enough? Romans 8.32. This is the mountain of evidence to beat all mountains of evidence. Look at Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Paul knew we would need a verse like that. Matthew knew we would need an account like this of the disciples because we would have this dilemma where we're frustrated and flailing because of our inability or frustrated and flailing because of our doubt. That's the failure. Now let's talk about the faith of the disciples, the faith of the disciples. Verse 20, truly I tell you, he says, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will be moved. It will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. Now, it's interesting in the gospel of Mark, Jesus gives a slightly different answer to their question. Why couldn't we drive it out? He says, you have so little faith. And then he says in Mark chapter nine, the parallel account, Mark records this. It says, this kind, Mark 9, 29, this kind, this demon, can come out only by prayer. That's not a contradiction between Matthew and Mark. Um, the, the, the main way that the sort of faith, mustard seed-sized faith that Jesus is commending here expresses itself, the main way it expresses itself is through prayer. It's the first response to mountain-like obstacles. Now, we should think about this for just a minute. As far as we know, no one, none of the disciples, not even Jesus, ever literally moved a mountain. But Jesus uses these two things, mustard seed, mountain, as a contrast, deliberately a contrast. Mustard seed is the smallest of all seeds that you can see with, your, with the naked eye. There are, in biology, smaller seeds, but the mustard seed is, is teeny bitty tiny. A mountain, in contrast, is the largest thing on planet Earth that you can see. Now, someone will say, I can see the sun, I can see the moon, and the sun and the moon are bigger than mountains. Yeah, but they, in the sky, they look pretty small. And I can see the ocean. You can't see the whole ocean. A mountain is the biggest thing that you can see all of. And Jesus says... Don't be overwhelmed by mountain-type challenges. Don't be depressed. Don't be discouraged by mountain-top, uh, by mountain things, mountain obstacles. Don't be overwhelmed by them because all you need is mustard seed faith. Mustard seed faith moves mountain-like obstacles. A mountain, moving a mountain, was a proverb in Jesus' day for something that was so hard, it was almost impossible, nearly impossible. We have at this point in time in our church, we had our elders meeting on Thursday night. We met together. We prayed. We talked about caring for the congregation. There are some brothers and sisters who are part of our church who are facing heavy things, physical challenges, relationship challenges, family challenges, mountain-like things. 
Elders, do you have a mustard seed of faith to pray for those things? It's a wonderful promise not to be overwhelmed by humongous things because mustard seed faith is what Jesus is calling us to here. Now, there's an elephant in the room I suppose we should think about, or maybe a mountain in the room we should think about. Jesus makes promises like this in the New Testament a number of times, and I confess, maybe it's just me, maybe I'm the only person who thinks this. Sometimes it seems like Jesus overpromises. Nothing will be impossible for you, he says. Or look at John 16, 23 and 24. In that day, Jesus said, in that day, you will no longer ask me anything. Very truly, I tell you, my father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until you now, you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive and your joy will be complete. I've prayed. I read Matthew 17. I read John 16. I've prayed for mountain-like things. Jesus meant by this promise for us to pray more. Sometimes I get discouraged, though. Help comes for me slowly and through my thick skull. When I remember that the Bible offers prayer promises, that's true. But along with it, it warns us that our great problem is that we often pray poorly. Look at James 4, 2. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. Oof. Or Romans chapter 8, Paul says in Romans 8, you, you don't know what you ought to pray for. The Holy Spirit he intercedes for you because you don't know what you ought to pray for. Jesus does not overpromise, I underpray. That's often the problem. Maybe John Calvin would help us here. He says that Jesus is talking about mustard seed faith. The same sort of faith, this size faith, that asks Jesus to move mountains is the sort of faith that changes our hearts and changes what we ask, what we pray for. This faith is not just uh, moves us toward God, but it, it, it molds our hearts in what we ask. Don Carson says that when Jesus says nothing here, he means within the context of what Jesus has commanded us to do. Nothing within the context of what Jesus has commanded us to do will be impossible for you. This, this passage is a warning about relying on yourself and a warning away from poor prayer patterns and moving us more deeply into what God has called us to do. Now, let me be more concrete if I can. I want you to think about your prayer list and what's on it. Probably there's, uh, you probably pray for your family members on a regular basis. Maybe you have people move on and off your prayer list based on the suffering that they're experiencing. Those who are sick, those who have specific needs. That's good. You should pray for those things. You should, you should keep praying for those things. Some of you, I wonder, think about this. Do you have a besetting sin in your life that is often the course of uh, the subject of your prayer life? Huh, this mountainous problem that's in my life. Remember, do you have mustard seed? Do you have a mustard seed to pry that mountain, move it? Maybe you should pray, though, about mountainous things involved in what Jesus has authorized us and commanded us to do. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, uh, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. There's a whole big world that needs to hear the good news about Jesus. 
Do you have faith as small as a mustard seed for this mountain-sized obstacle? You will act in very small ways, my guess is, in your life because um, my sphere of influence, your sphere of influence is, is small. But we think and we pray big. God has, has provided for us this wonderful church facility that we've just refreshed. May God fill it. May he fill it so that we have to build again or plant another church and then may God fill both of those spaces too. And again, do that again. We pray big because God himself is big. Ephesians 3.20, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Pray big because God is big. An infinite God is worthy of big trust. Big praying. Get after that. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning and we are thankful to you for your kindness to us in giving us this account of these flailing disciples because we confess that sometimes we flail and we are frustrated too. Sometimes we're frustrated even in the subject to which Jesus is turning his attention in this passage. We're frustrated in our prayer lives as we see mountainous challenges. We come before you this morning having read your word, asking you by the Holy Spirit to apply it to us in our frustration and our flailing. Remind us of that, that you are a great God and worthy of mountain-sized faith, let alone mustard-seed-sized faith. Help us not to be discouraged, Lord, in our frustrating, our frustrating failing and in the mountain-sized obstacles that we see, but make us men and women who walk by faith, who with mustard seed-sized hearts pray to the great God. Help us to walk by faith so that we might glorify the Lord of glory and become increasingly like him. We pray these things together in his name, saying, Amen.